Welcome to another edition of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hi, I'm Mark Whitlock, one of the producers here. And I just wanted to stop in on this edition and play back some of the best clips of 2015. We're going to take a look back at the three most popular podcast episodes from 2015. Before we get started, a couple of things. First of all, we still want to hear from you. Uh, We'd love to hear a couple of things. One, what was the best piece of advice or the best quote about recovery that you heard in 2015? Also, uh, what are you thankful for? What did you see God do through Samson Society and your recovery this year? Give us a call, 615-807-0476. That's 615-807-0476. And leave us a voicemail. Uh, We can use that audio as part of a podcast coming up. Uh, Again, you can find that phone number at piratemonkpodcast.com. That's piratemonkpodcast.com. Second thing I wanted to mention was for men living in Tennessee, we have a conference coming up uh, April 15 through 17. Nate is going to be speaking at that conference. We're going to have some details coming up, but if you'll go to piratemonkpodcast.com and click on the retreat link, you'll have a chance to take a uh, short survey and give us your input to help make it a better conference. And there may be more conferences around the, the country coming in 2016 as well. Um, You can stay tuned here to the podcast to find that out. The first podcast we're going to take a look back at today is one of the most recent, and it was episode 161. This is the third most listened to podcast for the year and featured a special guest, Ken Snyder from Louisville, Kentucky, and his new book, Crossroad. Here's a clip from episode 161. Yeah, I love the way that um, in your book you... Uh, don't pass up an opportunity to open a door on the gospel mm. as you're telling your own story and as you're describing the process, uh, the problem of, of addiction and the process of recovery. Um, have you found, what, what's been kind of the spiritual benefit of recovery for you? Well, you know, the best way to, to, to answer that question is, you know, we are, a, we describe ourselves as a 12-step group and really we're not. Yeah. I mean, we have a fifth step. Mm-hmm. That's presented to the group, and I, we all believe, and I, I, I believe firmly, it's very important for a sex addict to tell his story to a group, yeah, not a one-on-one type model. But really, we're a two-step group, and I kind of came up with this off of AA, and yeah. it is, you know, one, the first step is stop masturbating, and two, change everything else about your life. Yeah, uh-huh. and I mean, and but what happens is when you stop acting out. Mm-hmm. You open your spiritual door for God to come in yeah. and for Him to begin transforming you, and and sure enough, everything else about your life changes. Yeah. Uh, our meetings again, they're a little they can, they're just a bunch of guys. Yeah. I always say we fart and belch with the best of them. Yeah. I mean, but uh, I've never been in an environment where I can feel, hear, touch, smell, taste the Spirit of God. Like yeah. in our meetings, yeah. because there is, it's just, there's no judgment. And where there's no judgment, that leaves a vacuum that God's love fills. Yes. That's the only way I know to describe it. Yeah, yeah. So these these guys that you've been walking with for 15 years, how many, I mean, I'm guessing people come and go. They do, they uh, do. How many, how many guys are in your group? We have uh, three meetings a week, and they, they range from 15 to 20 guys uh, on Tuesdays to about 35 on Thursdays because we have a wives group okay. that also meets on Thursdays. And then on Saturdays, which is the old pros meeting, uh, the veterans, and I'm in that, uh, about 20 guys usually. Okay. So, are those all individual guys? Uh, each of them are, yes, individual I mean, individual guys. groups. So individual, individual groups. Guys. Most guys uh, just go to one meeting okay. a week. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, what is the? How do you guys live out community? What's that look like? Are you calling guys every day, or, and yeah. what's the standard that you that your your group kind of holds each other? To? It's we like a lot of you know. I do some research. I call people like Nate and uh, a guy in L.A. and a guy in the Northwest. Okay, what's going on? How do you guys work and whatever? And it seems like we're all really loose. Yeah. And it's the the whole sponsorship model from AA sure. is. Uh, and we're we're not real heavy with it. Mm-hmm. We're not real disciplined with it. But we do encourage that. Yeah. Uh, you guys call them silences, right? Yeah. Uh, and the best way Newton to answer that is I, I have a, a, a sponsor uh, who I email at least three or four times a day, okay. and Monday mornings awesome. our our check in. Mm-hmm. That's the t- the subject line on my uh, on my email to him. Monday morning, first thing is check in. Okay, yeah. this is this is what happened this weekend. It was a good weekend, whatever. Uh, and we talk on the phone too. Sure. We do encourage uh, guys to to gravitate to that man or men who is further down the path, who they can turn to for answers to questions and accountability. Does it happen right away? Unfortunately, no. Yeah. I think each of us enters recovery. That isolation is going to take a while to be to be brought down, yeah. and I think it takes six months. And I know when in greeting new guys, I say, please give this six months to allow yourself time to bond, to make friends with that individual that God has for you to be your silence. Right? Yeah. 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 You're looking over here. Yeah. You're passing me the ball. Well, uh, I'm just unaccustomed to Aaron's silence. He's usually that's how, that's he's usually tired. asked 15 questions by that's now. How, that's how tired Aaron is. Yeah. I'm, I'm just I'm I'm listening. I was actually the one question I had. I was curious during those years of acting out. What what exactly did that look like for you? You mentioned masturbation. Was it uh, pornography as well, or was it mostly focused on masturbation? It was mostly focused on masturbation. Uh, I've never really needed porn, to be quite honest. I mean, uh, we each have different thresholds. I could simply fixate on a woman that I would see that day, and she would be material for masturbation. Uh, The pattern of being raised Pentecostal was I would not, and also having some Jewish ancestry. I got guilt all over the place. But at any rate, (laughs) I uh, I would not allow myself to pray for 24 hours after masturbating. Uh-huh. strangest kind of little little pharisaical yeah. ritual you could have but yeah. nevertheless that's what i would do and then the guilt would ebb and i'd get a fresh start and of course i'm doing this all by myself so my own cycle was about a month mm-hmm. i'd be fine and then uh, something would happen and uh, i'd be I'd, you know either something good or something bad usually something bad and and the, the cycle would start all over again yeah yeah. So can we can we unpack this a little? Because I've actually recently been having a conversation that's very similar to this with somebody who uh, is discovering they're absolutely addicted to a behavior, but it's not attached to physically acting out with other women or with pornography, and that that can be a little confusing because, like you said, most boys have experienced this this thing since they were young most of society says this is totally natural of course you're supposed to it's a release all that kind of stuff uh so finding the line of what is appropriate inappropriate when does this become an addiction uh yes this can be a problem within a marriage and your own life even if you're not looking at pictures of naked women i think all of that's a conversation most people don't have and it touches more people's lives than anything else 
Mm. It's an interesting proposition, and if if I'm understanding your question, Aaron, it's uh, where does normalcy end and addiction begin? Would it be fair to say that's that's what you're maybe probing? Yeah, and and along with uh, how what what is normalcy? I mean, obviously, that's going to be. Uh, from the sin of owning people that any masturbation is spilling your seed and God will kill you um, to this is totally natural. Like there's going to be a range of Christians all over in that. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, it's an individual thing. Uh, I, I'm hypersensitive to to women, basically, and uh, any and all. Uh, not just pornography, but uh, even contact. Uh, of, of I'm not talking about to an extreme, but I'm just, I'm triggered by any virtually any woman I see. So I, I'm hyper. I think I'm. I call it an allergy to women. I'm I'm extremely allergic to women. I have a 21 year old son, and one of the fruits of recovery is being able to lead him, uh, starting with the talk when he was 11. He he was ready at that age, and uh, this of course he's discovered his sexuality and he discovered masturbation and uh, we we talk about it a lot we check in with it I, I check in with him a great deal and and one of the things I've learned in our recovery group is do not shame anyone uh, men are going to masturbate uh, young men especially I mean they discover their sexuality what I what I've always told him is son try to keep the try to keep a lid on that best you can but whatever you do do not ever masturbate when you're upset Mm. Because because then you're using it, you're using something that's that's going to happen, but you're using it as an escape and as a medication. That's where the danger comes in. Because I mean, let's face it, we, we're all going to suffer bumps and bruises. Uh, do we take those to God? That's what we need to do. But so many of us turn to sex or drugs or alcohol or gambling or adrenaline or, or any other substance. That was Ken Snyder uh, talking about his new book, Crossroad. You can find information out about that at the show notes at piratemonkpodcast.com. That's piratemonkpodcast.com. Again, you're looking for episode 164 uh, if you're hearing this and uh, not near your phone or a computer. So piratemonkpodcast.com. You can find out more about Ken Snyder's book, Crossroad, and some of the other things discussed during that clip. The second most listened to podcast of the entire year was part of Nate's Sunday School class. Uh, This one aired back in January. It was episode 153, and it was entitled The River of Denial. So here's a clip from Nate Larkin teaching in his Sunday School class at Christ Community Church. I want to give you 10 different ways, and I'm sure there are more, 10 ways in which uh, we operate in denial, 10 denial strategies if you're looking for, uh, if you want to kind of mix it up in your denial, uh, adopt a new strategy, I'll give you some hints on how to do it. I've used all of these, and I'm sure before the day is over, we'll use a few of them. Okay, denial strategy number one, minimizing. It's easy for me just to say, you know, the problem's not that bad. I don't know what everybody's making such a big deal about. It's really nothing. I didn't drink that much. Uh, I did it once. I just did it once. It's over. Don't go crazy. I'll minimize what the consequences are. And uh, it's amazing. We, we addicts have really great forgetters, right? So 48 hours, uh, 48 hours later, the hangover wasn't that bad. Right? And we, 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 
and, it, and it, you minimize, the way to minimize is just don't keep very good books, don't keep track. For Pete's sake, don't chart. Don't keep track of anything. Don't keep track of what you eat, what you weigh, what you drink, what you spend. Don't track at anything. Yeah, if you want to defeat minimizing, start keeping records. You, uh, when I uh, was early in recovery, I'm still trying to accept the fact, because I can't even begin recovery until I accept the fact that my life is completely out of control. I am powerless over lust and it has made my life unmanageable. I'm still negotiating when I come in the door. I, I do what most addicts do when they first come in the door. You know, I got a bit of a problem. I got a little bit of a problem. And my sponsor knows I've got a far bigger problem than I know. So one strategy he employed was he said, uh, he asked me if I, could, if I could run a spreadsheet, if I could build a spreadsheet that I know how to do Excel. I said, yeah. He said, uh, you know, before we meet next time, why don't you build a spreadsheet and see if you can figure out uh, how much money you have spent on your addiction. See if you can reconstruct it. So, I mean, I did. I went back and I, there was a lot of years there. And I, a lot of them were a fog, but as I started to think and, and kind of extrapolate and estimate, and I got to a bottom line. I was shocked. As far as I can figure, I spent $300,000 on pornography and prostitutes. That's a huge number. And you know, I never, I never registered it. I never kept track of that. And I always told myself, you know, it's, it's bad, but it's not that bad. It just wasn't counting. Okay, strategy number one, minimizing. So we can minimize well, what we're doing. We can minimize its uh, uh, effect on other people. I'm not really hurting anybody else. No. I'm learning still that uh, what, I, what I did all those years affected other people, not the least among my own kids. Uh, number two, strategy number two, comparison. This is a very valuable uh, strategy, very helpful. Um, uh, the best way for me to convince myself that I don't have a problem is to find somebody else who has this, a similar problem but is much worse than me. Right? So who is an addict? An addict is somebody who's worse than me. Right? Uh, and you can always find somebody who uh, is worse. I loved, you know, I told myself, look, at least I never got emotionally involved with anybody. I might have a problem if that were the, if, that, if I'd gone there. So this is, uh, this is the strategy that Jesus skewered so beautifully when he told that story of the, the Pharisee who goes into the temple. It says, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. I've never done any of that stuff. Or even like this tax collector. It's a great strategy for denial, comparison. Number, third, number three, uh, you can create a diversion. If um, attention starts to um, focus on your behavior, whatever it is, a great way to kind of stop that process so you don't have to face what's going on is just start a different argument. Blow something up. Get, just get something else going. Right? This is the strategy that the woman at the well employed. 
right? Jesus shows up, it's in the middle of the day, sitting at the well, and this Samaritan woman comes, and she's all by herself. It's the middle of the day. That's not how women go to get water. First of all, you don't go in the middle of the day because it's hot. You come early, and in the same way that women go to the bathroom, they go to the well together, right? It's always a group. But this woman is coming when nobody else is around. She's coming in the middle of the day. She's coming alone, and it turns out there's pretty much a reason. She's slept with everybody in town, basically, and the women all hate her guts. But there's no way she's going to let that subject come up. She avoids it. It's Jesus who finally says it, right? Instead, she starts a diversion. I mean, as soon as they get going in conversation, she goes, she starts that old religious argument. So, <laughs> you people say we have to go to Jerusalem to worship, and we worship. And Jesus, that's, okay, that's classic diversion. I'll tell you what, addicts love to talk politics. Or we'll talk anything. We'll talk your ear off. Especially if the conversation is going to come anywhere near what we're doing. Love to talk theology. It's a great diversion. We'll go Bible studies, man. Good thing to do. Number four, kind of related to that, is distraction. And here I'm pretty much just trying to distract myself rather than other people. I just don't want to think about it. i got to think about something else. You know, during my years of active addiction, um, I, I always listened to the radio in the car. The minute I got in the car, I mean, the radio was on. For years, I listened, uh, to, I listened to a lot of talk radio. Might be uh, political talk radio, you know? Tuning in, first thing in the morning, get my assignment for the day. Who am I going to be angry at? What am I going to be afraid of? You know, just rev me up, and then I'll listen. I'm on the hook all day long. And then for a while, it was sports talk, 24-hour sports talk. So I'll obsess about trades and salary caps, and I'm making strategy for the next season. On a team, I, I, I have no influence at all. But it's a great distraction. And one of the signs to me that I was making progress in recovery was it got to the point where the radio was an annoyance. I wanted to shut it off. Because I wanted to be able to sit in the car and kind of be there with me and with God and with what was going on. It's a sign that something has shifted. Strategy number five, uh, blaming. This is a kind of a cool one. In a way, you're kind of admitting that you have a problem, but you skate right away. Because it's really not your problem. Uh, There's nothing you can do about it because it's somebody else's fault. Right? You know, I have a problem because I'm married to her or him. I have a problem because of my parent. Or if you had my boss, you'd be doing what I'm doing, right? It's not me, it's them. Somebody else shifting responsibility. It's my family history. That's another, you know, we can do that because you can't change family history and now I'm kind of locked in and. Don't judge me. And by the way, it's not that bad, and I'm blaming. And I, uh, one of the most powerful sentences I heard early in recovery, and I wound up hearing it several times. You know, they, you know, you can't begin until you take responsibility. I heard a guy say, if it's not my problem, there's no solution. Not my problem, there's no I've got to take ownership. 
All right. So uh, we got to escape that one. Now, okay, number uh, six. We are going to make it. Number six, uh, working. It's a good distraction. Work is honorable. It's good. Uh, but I have found that this is very valuable, uh, kind of a, 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 a tool in denial. You know what? If I just can't face, I don't want to deal with what my problem is, I'll just put my head down and work. I'll just work. I'll achieve. And if I'll do that, I'll probably succeed. And, and there's quite likely there's going to be some monetary benefit, which can distract me from everything I'm doing and justify everything I'm doing. Uh, our good friend James, he, uh, he nails this one uh, when he says... Uh, he says, for you say, oh, I'm sorry, no, no, this isn't James. This is what God says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation. You know, that church that was neither hot or cold. He says this, for you say, I am rich and I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I work my way right into denial. And I think I'm a success, and I'm a colossal failure and in deep trouble. Okay, another strategy, great strategy for denial is legalism. If I can't succeed in one area of my life, if I'm forever being defeated there, it's just a mess. Here's a great strategy. Pick another area that I can succeed in, where I can keep it between the lines. Make that all important. Work hard and preach that. Try to get, judge everybody who doesn't succeed over here. I'll get highly legalistic in the area where I can succeed. Jesus busted the Pharisees on this one. You know, when I, I, you know, I did this, by the way. In my years of active addiction, I never swore. Those of you who know me now may find that hard to believe, but I never, <laughs> ever swore. I was doing obscene things, but I never uttered an obscene <clears throat> word. And on those rare occasions when Allie would get overwhelmed and she'd let something fly, I would turn on her with just offended astonishment. How could you speak that way? You know. I also, if a cashier gave me too much change, I'd, I'd give the money back, thereby convincing myself that I'm an honest person. The Ayers call this cash register honesty. Yes, I'm honest. I gave the change back. It's a legalistic solution that avoids the real issue. So Jesus busted the Pharisees on this one. He said, woe to you Pharisees. You pay tithe on mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. And yet, you disregard justice and the love of God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Okay, we're on number eight. Number eight, strategy for denial. Fantasy. If the present is ugly and out of control, I could just escape into a magical, imagined future. Uh, for the years of my active addiction, I, 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 I harbored this belief that money would solve everything. And Allie got tired of it. I always had at least $3 million ideas working. Right? Maybe way, way more than that, she says. Okay? Um, it, I mean, they're just comical. And not that I ever really did much with any of them, because I have the ability to get a sense of accomplishment by having imagined 
doing something. <laughs> and so I could just kind of disregard what's going on now as irrelevant because success is right around the corner. It's coming and everything is going to be golden. This is where James steps in and says in verse 4, starting in verse 13, he says, Come now, those of you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Strategy number nine, false repentance. I found that, um, that I could quiet my conscience with, um, with a quick and very shallow and very private and completely intellectual repentance. Coming out of some, if I'd crossed a line that I said I was never going to cross, and that, that's what happens in addiction. Addiction is always progressive. So, you know, we always have a list of not yets, right? I haven't done that yet. I haven't done that yet. So, crossing a line, doing something I'd never done before, coming out and going, oh, boy, that was the wake up call. I'm done now. I'm going to repent now. God, I'm so sorry. I'm, I've, I've learned. This is it. I'm done. A good way to seal it would be to go to the altar. I wish, kind of, sometimes wish we had altar calls in this church. Can't do that. But I, what, in churches we were going to then, most of them, you could go to the front, right? Nobody's going to bug you. You just get quietly before God. Repent. And now it's done. Don't talk to me about it. I don't have to tell anybody. Nothing has to change. It's over. That was yesterday. It's so yesterday. I have repented. It's done. Now I don't have to look at it. Form of denial. Number 10. And this is the kicker. This is the one. That when all else fails, absolute denial. <laughs> <laughs> Just stonewall. No, sir. Not me. Done. And, and when pushed into a corner, we, we alcoholics will do that. Or, or, I'm not calling myself an alcoholic. We addicts would do that. I was thinking of an alcoholic friend of mine who'd kind of been negotiating with recovery for years and, you know, and it just, it got to a mess. And I love this guy. We're great friends to this day. But he was in a really bad way. And we finally did something we seldom do. We did an intervention. And got a bunch of us together and he showed up and it was pretty clear he was drunk. But he swore he hadn't had a drink in months, right? Stunt, not me, no, nothing, nothing. Well, you're not feeling well. I'm just not feeling well. All right, we'll take it. So we struck a deal. We'll go down to the emergency room, get you checked out, get some blood drawn, and uh, find out what's wrong. We'll get you treated. If there's alcohol in your system, you'll go straight to treatment. Oh, yeah, sure, come on. Man, he's, he's playing it right to the wall the whole way. We get down, they draw the blood, we're sitting around, he's talking, right? When the results come back, and his blood alcohol level is twice the legal limit, he looks like astonished, like flabbergasted. It's like, you know, yes, the, the you know, the immaculate intoxication. <laughs> you know, wow. And, and here's the key. 
He had to, to, to stonewall effectively, you have to convince yourself first. If, you, if you're really going to lie convincing to somebody else, you've got you to lie to yourself first. And we're going to close with our, going back to our good friend James, who says this. 1 John chapter 1, starting verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he doubles back. But if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth. That was Nate Larkin teaching in his Sunday school class at Christ Community Church back over a year ago. That aired as episode 153 of the Pirate Monk Podcast. You can click on the link to hear the whole episode by going to piratemonkpodcast.com and uh, clicking on the link there to find more information out about Nate uh, and his Sunday school class. His Sunday school class is a podcast of its own. Uh, All the local content is edited out of it, and you can hear the core teaching It's called Walking Lessons, and you can find a link at piratemonkpodcast.com to connect and and hopefully subscribe to Walking Lessons as a podcast as well. By far, the most listened-to broadcast of the entire year was episode 159, and was entitled, Where Do I Go From Here? And it featured Greg Oliver of Route 1520 and one of his cohorts, Adam Calvert. They're certified sex addiction therapists, And they're talking about how to get started. So once you declare, you know what, I got a problem. What do you do? How do you get started on the road to recovery? Here are Greg Oliver and Adam Calvert from episode 159. The listener right now that knows they're in deep water, but they've never told anyone. And if they set up a counseling meeting, that opens the door to, hey, honey, this uh, charge on my card every two weeks or whatever, uh, the, the golf course is just called CSAT uh, yeah. Joe. You know, how do you explain that? So what what does someone do? Because it feels like there's either you live in isolation and shame or you dive in the deep end of self-revealing. Are there no steps in between that somebody can say, I'm too scared to jump off the, the high dive? Where are the steps? Oh, well, good question. Mm-hmm. That is a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone finally comes into my office, you know, after they've tried to call three or four times and then just not. Um, I try and make the, the office as comfortable as possible. I mean, you know, they're, it's safe. It's, it's interesting. Look, I've got stuff for them to kind of look around at and just, you know, kind of calm their edge a little bit. I don't, a lot of times start off with, okay, Tell me about how you got off last night. I don't, you know, not. I, I find out where they are, kind of meet them where they are. Um, then we talk about <clears throat> their core beliefs. I spend a lot of times, a lot of time talking to the mm-hmm. the guys about their core beliefs, um, because an addiction is really just a coping mechanism that has gotten way out of control. Yeah. Okay. And so we go back and we just start talking about who they believe they are what are their gifts their strengths um what do they not like about themselves what are you know we just kind of gradually get into the conversation um and so far it really does 
at least it works for how my approach is. Um, so, and so what's what's the step for the guy that's not going to end up in your office though? That that's maybe three months away. He's not gonna he's not gonna call, and he's not going to self reveal. He's probably not even going to go to a group. But if he does, he's not going to self reveal. So what does he do? The the website Route fifteen twenty's website had a lot of information mm-hmm. on it. A lot of um, there's data, there's articles, there's um, things that he could go ahead and kind of start doing um, to make some of those subtle changes. Um, some things to kind of look inward a little bit more here and there. Um, <clears throat> and so he evidently knows that there's a problem. Uh-huh. Okay, so he's moving in that direction. But having information that is understandable, that is non-shaming, that is non-judgmental is very important. And that's why um, being able to talk about it in the church setting in a non-shaming, non-judgmental way is, is vital as well. Yeah, but but even with that, I mean, I totally agree with what Adam's <laughs> saying. One of the things as a church leader that it's important to do is to manage the expectations because you can be the safest church on the planet, and if a guy's not ready, he's not going to raise his hand. That's right. right. You can lead by example. You could model transparency and authenticity. You can tell them that they're going to be safe. You can tell them you're going to show them grace. And if they're not ready, they're not speaking up. I mean, my, I, I was exposed. I had crossed lines. I knew that I would get fired if it came out. I was afraid of the consequences. I was not going to be the guy who raised his hand and confessed. And so God, in his love for me, caused me to get busted. And that was the, that was the, the story he was writing for me. Some of these guys get to the point where they can't live with it anymore, and they do raise their hands. And the thing that's so hard for people who provide care and who minister to folks is is staying on the right side of the the the, the codependent line and not trying to do their work for them. Yeah, uh, it's if if I'm trying to force somebody to recover before they're ready, it's not going to work. It won't work. Right. Exactly. That's so we have to be patient I, I, to have something that's there for them when they're ready. Right. And I love that encouragement. Uh, heck, you've already risked your browser history with all kinds of stuff. Why not risk it with a little I'm looking at sexual addiction articles and to to know those are out there? Because I, I think that can start to cultivate enough understanding. And shedding light always scares off shame. Shame only functions in darkness. So. Yeah. And when those articles are written and when the, the stories are written of recovery on on I felt like I was the only one okay and realizing that okay there are other guys that are walking in the same shoes I am or very close to or they've walked ahead of me um, that really does that really does open up the the healing process of because Satan wants you to think that you're the only one yeah and if people and one of the core beliefs is if anybody finds out what I'm struggling with, they will leave me. Yeah. That is a huge core belief that we as men believe a lot of times. And so as we start reading and, and kind of hearing that, okay, that's that's not true, then it gives us a little more strength to keep moving forward in this healing process. And to be to be realistic, sorry, Nate, I'll, I'll grab you. I just want to finish this thought. I feel like there are guys out there listening that this is them and this is going to be them for a little chunk of time. They're not ready. 
to jump in. Mm-hmm. And I think the affirmation that their desire to be healed, to be for this to be made right, is real. And they still will fail tomorrow or the next day. Like the failures are going to continue, but that doesn't change the fact that their heart's desire is to to lose that anchor and just go running back to their father's loving arms. And that's okay. This is the process. It's not just I've decided to change and bam, good. I made the decision. It's done. You got something to say, Greg. That's so key with what you just said of the heart's desire. If you've got somebody whose heart's desire is to stop, you know, it's amazing how many people who want so badly to stop walk around all day questioning whether they're really a Christian or not. Yeah. And I'm like, if you weren't a Christian, I really question if you would be as bothered by your sin as you are. You know, and and I, I kind of start out by saying, just take some hope in the fact that you want to stop so bad. That probably is is communicating something that's good. And then we do focus on on the true the the truth of what the gospel tells them about themselves. I mean, our recovery groups we don't focus primarily on the behavior. We focus on what's driving the behavior, and and we really look at two main paradigms of belief from which men are coming. One is either they're an orphan, that God has left them on their own to get their crap together before He wants to have fellowship with them, and they can't do it because we weren't designed to be independent. Or they're believing as a beloved son who knows that no matter how long I do this on my own strength, eventually it's going to come to an end. And by the way, God never called me to do this on my own strength. You know, He's bridged the gap between me and Him that sin had created, and He did that on the cross. And so if I really believe that he's presently walking with me, and, and, and you know, Lynch and the guys who wrote True Face and the Cure mm-hmm. illustrate this beautifully. If I really believe that it's God with me and us together working on my sin, and I'm not alone, I'm not trying to earn my way back into his good graces, then it makes all the difference. And so we really lead with that. We try to say, look, the, your sexual struggle is not your identity. Your identity, if you are in Christ, is you're a beloved son of the Father, mm-hmm. and He loves you no matter what. That picture in Luke 15, 20 of the Father running to His Son, embracing Him, kissing Him, throwing a party for Him, that's your heavenly Father. That's what He thinks about you. And we go so far as to say, even while you're cleaning up after acting out, that's how your Father feels about you. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for men to accept that when they're in that deep place of shame, but we just keep going back to that over and over again. That was Greg Oliver and Adam Calvert of the organization Route 1520. You can find out more about them, including a link to that self-assessment, at piratemonkpodcast.com, piratemonkpodcast.com, and look there for uh, episode 164. We talk about the uh, the best of 2015, and you can find a link to take that self-assessment or order any of the books that uh, are authored by Greg. What was your favorite episode of 2015? Let us know. You can leave us a comment at piratemonkpodcast.com uh, or leave us a comment on our Facebook page. And if you haven't already joined the group uh, at Facebook, uh, come on over to piratemonkpodcast.com and click on our Facebook link to, uh, to join the group to talk about the podcasts. We have some exciting things coming up in 2016, and we'd love to hear from you. What are you looking for from this podcast? Come to piratemonkpodcast.com. And you can click to take the listener survey to tell us what you want most out of the podcast in 2016. For the entire gang, which will be back together in about a week or so, I'm Mark Whitlock, urging us all to stay on the path. See you next time on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh-huh. 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 Uh-huh.
Junior P. Preaching recovery. 